Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's reading is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you may open them again back to Psalm 127 or feel free to use an app on your phone. Or for those of you who have the word memorized in Hebrew, you may simply recall that to your, to your memory as, as well. Let me... Um, to make sure I don't go too long because I like being up here, which can be a bit of a problem. Christian Smith is a professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame or Notre Dame, for those of you who care about those pronunciations. He has this fantastic new book that just came out called Handing Down the Faith. Uh, which is how parents pass their religion on to the next generation. And this is not a book uh, specifically about Christianity. It's, it's a book that explains how it is, or after two years of study, how it is that, that faith is passed down from parents to their teenagers and young adult children, whether it be Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or whatever it is. And what, was, what I find, found really fascinating here in the beginning of the book, he says that what, what they found in terms, of, in terms of the data is that no matter what tradition, no matter what religion, when you ask parents, what is the purpose of life? Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, this is the consensus answer that parents give for the purpose of life, which is going to explain really what, what motivates how they parent their children. The purpose of life is to lead a happy and good life in the dual sense of, of both having life go well, enjoying success and happiness, and living life rightly, is doing what is morally right. A good life is one in which self-directed individuals are happy, live ethically, work hard, enjoy family and friends, and help other people. Good lives must be self-determined 
and pursued in ways that are true to each unique individual self. But they should not be individualistic in the sense of being isolated or selfish. They must always be realized and enjoyed with others in and with communities and groups and families and probably marriage partners. Good lives achieve a certain quality of life in this world, in the here and the now. The purpose of life is to have a happy life, to have a, to have a good life, to be successful, to be morally right, to do those things and to live uh, morally and justly in moral community. And I just find this absolutely fascinating and also filled with pressure. Because for those of you who have lived a little while, you know how hard it is when life hits you, when, when things don't go the way that you plan, that, that the happy life that you thought would happen doesn't. And that often what happens is you begin to lose hope that life can be good at all. And what this passage before us in Psalm 127 is, is inviting us to do is to free ourselves, I think, from the pressure of having to produce the outcomes of happiness and to trust the Lord instead. We think about how much of our lives are focused on building security and safety and stability and the toiling hours and hours and hours at our jobs that many of us don't even like. Well, this passage is inviting us to not worry about those things as much. It just sort of quickly, simply says that, that if God is at the center, or rather that, that, that unless God is at the center, those pursuits are fairly empty anyway. The stability and the security that one actually seeks is found in the Lord. In the context of the passage here, we see references to house and, and city. And in this particular psalm, those are not simply physical places. There in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the, 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 the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. To have a house is not simply a physical structure. In the context of the psalm here, it also refers to one's legacy and one's dynasty. There are many senses in which the word house is used, particularly in the Old Testament and particularly in, in, in this psalm, in, in, in the psalms in general. We see that the house is often used in reference to the heavens, to God's sanctuary. We see this in Psalm 78, that Yahweh builds Zion in Psalm 102, also referred to the house, the cities of Judah in Psalm 69, Jerusalem in 147. These are all references to the building of the community. God builds Jerusalem's walls, also referred to a house in Psalm 51. God builds David's throne in Psalm 80. 
God will build Judah and Israel after the exile rather than demolishing them in Jeremiah 24 and 33 and 45. In 2 Samuel, David is promised these words from the Lord. When your days are filled and and, and you rest with your fathers, I will set your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So house refers to this this legacy. You may think of, of, insert your last name, the house of the McGillicuddy's, or the house of the Johnson's, or the house of the Kim's, or whatever your last name is. Sort of think of it in terms of building that house. And city refers not only to a physical place, but also refers more broadly to the community where people reside. It's a place of protection and flourishing. It's a place where you are protected from enemies, where humans participate in the protection of the city. This is a place where people thrive. And the passage reminds us here that it is God who ultimately secures that Protection. One commentator put it this way, one of the basic needs of cities in the ancient Near East was for security. This was the reason for the high reinforced walls built around cities. The guards who, positioned at, who, who were positioned at strategic location points along the walls to sound the alarm in the event of danger or an enemy attack. This passage then is really making quite a serious point that namely if you're trying to build your own house on your own terms, if you're trying to build a legacy on your own terms, that is, if the Lord is not at the center of it, it is, according to what the text says, in vain. The Hebrew word there is shav, which means emptiness, falsehood, nothingness, vanity, worthlessness. According to another commentator, this passage seeks to temper the slippery slope into the arrogance of our own achievements. This is what this commentator said. Solomon, therefore, does not condemn watchfulness, a thing which God approves, nor yet men's labor by which they undertake it willingly. According to the commandment of God, they offer to him all acceptable sacrifice. But lest the presumption that they should forcibly appropriate to themselves that which belongs to God, he admonishes them that their being busily occupied will profit them nothing except insofar as God blesses their exertions. So why are we working all of these long hours and and toiling? For what? Why? I mean, the average New Yorker, by the way, works about 49 hours per per week and then commutes six hours per week on top of that. What are we doing all of this for? What are we building and toiling for? 
the passage seems to indicate that, that if you are trying to build and, and work and, and labor and toil to protect yourself from life's struggles and, and, and suffering and, and to protect yourself and, and, and to build security for yourself in your own life, you may be doing it in vain because those are the things, says this passage, that God does. In fact, if you think you're making your life work, so that you can have peace. The text even says that your sleep is actually a gift from God. See, New York is a a really strange place because it gives you the illusion that you can make your life work on your own terms. I mean, think about it, right? If you have the right education, if you have the right job, if you have enough money, if you know the right people, you can put your legacy, your house, on your own terms, and do whatever you want to make life work according to what you think will work. Well, how is that working out for you or for most people that you know? Is it it really working? Is your life anxiety-free, stress-free, frustration-free, free of suffering and pain and the challenges of life? What are you building? What are you trying to secure? A life of happiness, one that is free of, of struggle and suffering. In fact, in this environment, we are misled to believe that the, the more successful you are, the more it makes people believe and think they don't need God. I mean, look at all of the accomplishments I've made without God. Look at how successful I am without God. Look at all the things that I've done. I don't really need God. I mean, God is for the simple-minded. It's for the superstitious. It's for the weak, the, the backwards. But the passage says, wait a second. Everything that is involved in your toiling, if God is not at the center of it and driving what it means, it is, in fact, in vain. But it gets even better than this because it says that you can offer those things and, and deposit those things to the Lord. It says that sleep is granted to those he loves. That is, if the Lord is at the center of the, the watching and the building, then the outcomes aren't up to you. The outcomes are up to God. And so the things that you, don't, the, the things that you think you have to worry about, you don't, and you get some peace, and you get to sleep. What a relief that I don't have to control the outcomes of all of the things that, that, that visit my life, that I can actually trust in the Lord, and, and, and there I find peace, and there I find rest, and, and there I get to sleep, even as a gift. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. 
You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. In the second part of this psalm, we, we see the we sort of get introduced to the, to the futility of not having God at the center and, and being released to sort of let that go. And then on the second half of this psalm, those remaining verses, we see that trusting in the Lord offers purpose to our parenting. What a relief. On the one hand, that trusting in the Lord offers offers peace, work, and toiling. And secondly, it provides purpose to our parenting. It says in the passage there, if you go back and look, in verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord. An offspring, sorry, a a reward from, from Him. In the ancient Near East, Children were a sign of blessing. It wasn't a presumption. It was, it was a sign of, of, of God's grace. It was a, it was a sign of goodness. It was, it was, it was a sign that, that you're being bestowed mercy and, 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 and love because you have, a, you have a child. It wasn't a given, right? They didn't have the, the technological advances that we, we do now where we're surprised that, that someone, that a child survived a childbirth, and, and yet alone a mother, those things were not a given. So in the, in the ancient Near East, having a child was a cause of great celebration. It, the text says that, that children are a reward. They are, they are an extension of grace. They are an intentional gift bestowed with divine, cosmic, transcendent, extra-familial purpose from the beginning of their lives. And so what makes the church different is that we, we see children, we receive children, and we celebrate their presence. We, we love them. One of the things I did, because I, I noticed, I saw that this is trending, was to look up the reasons why you should not have kids. And I, I Googled that, and my laptop almost exploded with all these sites telling you all the reasons that you should not have kids. Like, please do not do this. This is ruin your life. Here are some reasons that I found. And by the way, every single reason I'm giving right now, and uh, all of the reasons that I found, they were backed by scientific articles. Kids are bad for your romantic relationships. They interfere with that. Do not have them. Kids cost a lot of money. Three parents are like, yes. It says, also on the list, and by the way, by the way, I found some websites that had a list of 50 reasons I want not to have kids. This one I found reduced it down to 20. But kids are terrible for the environment. More children, more trash. Uh, in the Economist magazine, there was a recent article that explained wh- how, why having children actually undermines climate change. 
and that the best thing for the environment, for the planet, is to not have those things. That children can hurt your earning potential, especially for women, because of the trade-offs that come with motherhood. That children interfere with your education goals. Children interfere with your body's capacity to not take on extra weight. Have children gain weight. It also said on this list, do not have children because you'll sleep less. Their drag on your social life, kids will kill, quote, your me time. We also see that children will ruin your travel goals. If you want to travel around the world, I'm telling you right now, kids will interrupt that. And what's so fascinating about this passage to me, which, by the way, is 3,000 years old, is that it actually does the opposite. It says that children are awesome. They're amazing. They are a gift. I mean, part of, of both the Jewish and Christian traditions have been unique in the celebration of children. Children are great to have around because they are the Lord's heritage. In fact, it says that children are like arrows, which is just such a strange way to, to think about a, a, a child. It just seems somewhat violent. Look down at verse 4. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, I have some broken glass in my apartment. Children are arrows. But it's just really fascinating that the, the, the controlling image here is a warrior and a, a quiver, right? The little bucket for the arrows, right? And that this is a good thing and, and that you want as many arrows as possible. It seems that at least in our culture, I don't think that we think of children as arrows. I think possibly we think of children more like cupcakes, right? You get, you open the cookbook, it has a list of ingredients, right? What do you add? You add some education, right? Right schools, right friends, right neighborhood, have them learn seven languages, play 12 sports, build that resume, add some sugar to it, mix it up, put that thing, right? Get a, and get the, get a, you know, don't, don't get a cheap mixer. Get, get a real, you know, sort of, when that lasts, right? Sort of mix them up. It's been 18 years. You pour them in the little cupcake molds, bake them. Put icing on them, maybe some Christianity a little bit, sprinkle them with some VBS stuff. And then you carry them around in protective cases. Right? And then you display them. My cute little perfectly baked cupcakes. But the passage says arrows. And, and what do we do with, with arrows? Arrows are, are used in, in war. They're used in, in, in battle that you take arrows and you, you sharpen them. Arrowheads, 
right? Takes some friction, friction to the arrowhead. You, 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 you have to carve out the, the, the shaft of the arrow and you put feathers on them and you, and think about this, right? You release them into the unknown. You may never see where the arrow lands. And so the passage says that, that, that to, to, to have these children is, is to be a blessing because they're, they're, they're used to defend the gates of the city. It's the children that are the legacy. It says this, because they are, they are arrows, they're to, be, they're to be nurtured in a very, very particular, particular way. I mean, go back and look. It says, uh, they will not be put to shame when they, the arrows, contend with their opponents. The parents, excuse me, um, uh, will not be put to shame when, when they, they contend with their opponents because of the children. Three thousand years old is this image of raising them in a very particular way. That, by the way, which is very un-American. I mean, Christians are an ancient people in a modern world, and the invitation to to apply this passage is the invitation to do something completely countercultural and bizarre, which is to see your children and to see the church's children as arrows. What's going on with these arrows and the city gates? Well, in, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, judicial assemblies were held at the gates of the cities, much like the courts of law today. And children raised as a heritage of the Lord, as one commentator puts it, expressly represents virtue and moral integrity as constituting the protection which they ought to afford to their fathers. The passage teaches us then that children, that, 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 that uh, a virtuous children, children with more, moral integrity, these are the children we ought to wish for. It is children cultivated and, and nurtured in moral virtue and distinguished in their courage to do what is right and excelling in their character that provides a defense of the city and silences the mouths of those who seek to harm the city and falsely accuse the city of lacking integrity and virtue. When the children are virtuous, there is no shame for the family. There is no shame for the community. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of morally courageous and, and, and virtuous kids because this is the legacy, right? This is, this is the defense of the city. And the younger you have them, the better, the passage says, because parents benefit from building virtue many years with their children. So because they are arrows, they, they, they sort of thwart the city against malevolence. The, the community is invested in their, in their sharpening and in, in their character and their moral virtue. It is not simply creating a world just for their happiness. According to the American dream, right? Personal peace and, and safety and, and affluence. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that being happy is not good. 
But I'm wondering what would happen if, if we did something radically different and, and instead of adopting this paradigm of, of perpetuating cycles of, of whatever happiness means to be thinking about it from a 3,000-year-old perspective, which seems to indicate more of, 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 of fostering the sorts of moral virtue that focuses on contentment. Contentment as the birthplace of, of having a life free from many forms of anxiety and depression and making really bad decisions that if we invested as much time on cultivating children's moral courage as we did their education and their extracurricular activities and all of the opportunities that we think they need in the quest to build extraordinary resumes, what would that look like? And why does this even matter? Well, because in the scriptures for thousands of years, families raising children is a centralizing means of God continuing his work in the world. It's not really through work. It's not really through the marketplace. But by focusing on, on or, or by focusing on ascending to cultural power, that the focus has been from the beginning the proliferation of the families in the people of God. It is fascinating that at the beginning of the psalm, we're humbled about the role of, of building legacies through our toil. And then the passage concludes in this section by saying, at the end of the day, it has much to do with how we treat our children. Theologian Gerard Van Groningen argues that God uses the family to bless society. Quote, this is what he says. Since the family is the basic unit in the fabric of society, it certainly follows that it is a basic, central, fundamental agent and channel as a means for the permeation of God's blessings to the nations. And I think, I think one of the things that sort of happened inadvertently over the last 30 or 40 years is that, that we, what we may have done, particularly in some evangelical contexts, what we may have done is elevate work and career as the role of influencing, as, 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 as the role of, of mission. We sort of elevated work career and obscured the place that families are designed to play in this work. In the 1980s, uh, baby boomers uh, set up a work in faith movements, and they, they did that for really good reasons, right? They were experiencing uh, so much of the sacred secular dichotomy with their own elders and their peers, and it made sense, and they were making the case that the workplace was just as important as worship. And as I've been sort of wondering, sort of investigating, sort of studying the social trends and generations, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if for millennials and Gen Zers, if that's really the main issue. It seems like the Bible's emphasis is using families and children and the children of, of his people to be the light to the world, to draw neighbors unto himself. And I'm wondering if this has been obscured inadvertently. 
I don't know, again, I'm investigating this, I don't know that for millennials and, and Gen Zers, it's if Psalm 127 is even aspirational. The aspiration seems to be more about the sort of self-actualizing God's purpose in your individual life through your career and your social activism and participating in the raising of the community's children may be a mere tertiary supplement. Really fascinating. I found this in Jeremiah 29. You know that verse where it says, seek the welfare of, of, of the city where I sent you into exile and prayed to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Anybody heard of this, this that verse before? What's really interesting are the verses before it. My mind exploded when I saw this. I, couldn't, I was like, I can't believe I forgot about this part. In verse 5, it says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. And then verse 6, it says, take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. So the, 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 the means of seeking the, where, the welfare of the city, which is, which you've been sent into exile, that part of the means of that comes through the family. It comes through this really awesome opportunity to celebrate the fact that we have children among us. These are arrows. And if you don't have children, it really challenges us, really invites us to, to, to assist in, in those who do in, in, in forming the church's children, the community's children, to be the arrows that this passage encourages us to have them to be. To push here, I wonder if, if the text is suggesting that the future of, of this church, the, 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 the future of all of the things that we are about is, is placed on the arrows, not what Christians are doing in their workplaces or in their political activism or in the, 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 the desire for social power and influence. And I'm not saying that those things are bad or wrong. What I am saying is maybe we need to add some extra resources for people who are raising arrows. Uh, Brad Edwards, he's a pastor in Colorado, he says this, the problem, the problem millennials struggle to navigate isn't bringing enough sacred into the secular, but bringing too much secular or standing in for something secular into the sacred. There's a longing for the transcendence and the distinction and holiness that, that boomers mostly scorned as irrelevant. End of quote. And what's so amazing, I think what's so distinctly different about what this 3,000-year-old passage says is that the, the raising of children and, and the activating of children and, and the shaping of these arrows is the invitation into transcendence. I mean, this is not simply running the, the sort of circles of, of creating perpetual forms of happiness, but it is something far deeper and far more existential and, and far more uh, historic and eternal. 
the passage is helping us see that the raising of children as arrows in, the qui- in a quiver is a holy activity. It is something we participate in because children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, this, by the way, is the most amazing part. And I, I found this, I read this part of the book, and, and I was on the floor happy to see this part. So think about this. If, if children are the heritage from the Lord, and, and if, 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 these, if these kids are, are the arrows, right? I mean, it really does, to me, indicate that parents are the superheroes of the story. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Check this out. This is data from two years of research. Some readers may, may be surprised to know that the single most powerful casual influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. Not their peers, not the media, not their youth group leaders or clergy, not their religious school teachers. Myriad of studies show beyond a doubt that parents of American youth play the leading role in shaping the character of religious and spiritual lives, even well after they leave home and often for the rest of their lives. This is really good news. Because it, 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 it means that, that, that those who are closest to the, the, the formation of these arrows have an amazing opportunity to carry on the legacy of all that God intends for the city and for the community. It's not going to be me or Michael Keller or Jenny or Taylor or, Taylor or, or, or Gabby. The, the invitation is to put all of the security and toiling and peace and families, all of these things, to trust them to the Lord. So it's an opportunity, but it's also sort of scary, right? To know that that, that that sort of influence falls primarily in the home. And so this is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take, take, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of the building, all of the security, all of the toiling, all of the peace, all the families, all of these things, Jesus is saying, trust those to me. Come to me and learn from me. Bring it all to me. I have the authority and the power to give you rest. I was resurrected so that you can have rest. And when you are united to Christ, you not only have peace, but you also have purpose. You're also brought into his transcendence that allows you to relax and trust the Lord that he has you in his care and your family in his care and everything about your life in his care. Here, if you'd like to calm your anxious mind, 
the invitation is to come to him. And let all of your cares and worries and and visions and imaginations about all of the things that you have before you in your life and your family, to cast those things and trust the Lord with those. He intends on purpose, because he is for his people, to see them accomplish everything that, that, that this passage says and to give them the power to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we can come to you with all of these things. We, we thank you that you have given us what we need to do the things that your text says. Father, I ask that, that we would come to you through your Son, united to him, And take all of these things and and cast them upon him and trust you in all that we say and do. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website, To learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family, just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.